Hello, and welcome to the 12th episode of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest picks a movie from popular culture, and I select a film from the more art classic side of cinema. I am your come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs, host, screenwriter, and script consultant, Howard Kasner. For my listeners, I ask if you would to like, follow, or comment on the podcast. Today, my guest is screenwriter, producer, Anne Kimbrough, who has chosen everyone's favorite Christmas movie, the Bruce Willis blockbuster Die Hard, while I have chosen the Luc Besson-authored French action thriller, District B-13. Anne, why don't you start by telling us something about yourself? Something deep, dark, and secret? (laughs) No, let's not do that. Yeah, I started out as a screenwriter, and now I've sort of branched over to being a producer-screenwriter. I have a writing-producing partner, Shiriko Murr, and it's been an interesting time in Hollywood right now, but we're still out there. Things are getting started again. Let's get into it, shall we? Sure. Uh, As I said, you chose Die Hard, and I will start by giving out some information about the film. It was released in 1988, is directed by John McTiernan, and it was written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen D'Souza. And it stars Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Alexander Gudinoff, Bonnie Bedelia, Reginald Johnson, Paul Gleason, William Atherton, Clarence Gilliard, Hart Bachner, and James Shigata. The basic premise of Die Hard revolves around New York Police Department's officer, John McClane, who travels to Los Angeles on Christmas Eve to be with his estranged wife, who has taken a job with the Nakatomi Corporation. But German terrorists have taken over the Christmas party, and it's up to McClane to save the day. Why did you choose this film? Well, as a screenwriter and I write action and thrillers, this is the quintessential film. I can remember in Hollywood, it was always like, oh, we want a diehard movie, we want a diehard movie, until it became, we want a Taken. That's the kind of right. scripts they were looking for. And it was the first one, I feel, that properly mixed that totally serious action thriller element with humor in such a way that it still holds up to me. I mean, I know that's a question we talk about later, but I even watched it recently with my son. He liked it. That's the true test. (laughs) If the next generation is also like, yeah, I get it. It's good. They did smoke in the airport, which we don't do now. But outside of that, it's still current. When did you first see the film? That is a crazy thing. I was just like racking my brain. I'm sure I saw it back in 88 when it came out. And it had to be in L.A. I was in L.A. in 88. It was a Christmas movie, like you said. So it had to come out about December, I'm guessing. I just don't remember going. I've seen it so many times now. It's just like a blur. (laughs) That's happening to me more and more. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I can remember some films where I saw them because I only saw them that once. I know I went out to see it. It was hugely popular at the time. You could not gone to see it. Right. (laughs) Right. Do you remember what your reaction to it was at the time? I loved it. I don't know anyone that doesn't love this movie. Bruce Willis was already popular on the TV show Moonlighting. And I remember this was his first big breakout where they're like, wow, he's really a star. Well, he was very lucky because they offered it to other people. And for various reasons, they didn't choose to do it. Actually, contractually obligated to offer it to Frank Sinatra. Oh, my gosh. Because Frank Sinatra had done a movie called The Detective, which was based on a book by... 
Richard Thorpe. And Richard Thorpe also wrote the book that Die Hard was based on, Nothing Lasts Forever. So contractually, they were obligated to offer Frank Sinatra, who obviously was much too old and wasn't remotely interested in doing this kind of action film. I think they offered it to Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he decided he wanted to try and and expand his range. And so he wanted to do the comedy Twins. They offered it to Bruce Willis and Bruce Willis had to turn it down because he was in Moonlighting. And then Sybil Shepard got pregnant. Uh, Lucky for him. Look at all these things that come together to make it the movie. I mean, obviously without him, it wouldn't have been the same movie. Mine have been successful, mine have not. Right. Yes, it was just a fortuitous set of events that Mm -hmm. she happened to just get pregnant this time. So they had to shut down production for Moonlighting. That pretty much certainly changed his life. You see this happen a lot. For example, the same thing happened for Harrison Ford for Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was first offered to Tom Selleck. But Tom Selleck had to turn it down because of the television show. So then Harrison Ford was able to take it. So you're right. Hollywood and filmmaking Mm. is full. Full full of it going both ways. Yes. But uh, we're lucky it worked in this. Yeah. I mean, obviously, every element of screenwriting, movie making, it all matters. Casting. It's crazy sometimes when they say, why didn't it work out? Well, you know, sometimes it doesn't. But we got lucky. It's always easier to tell. Yes. It's always easier to tell why something doesn't work out afterwards (laughs) than before or during. Yeah. I, I wonder during if they knew. Well, the crazy thing about it is I actually know one of the actors in it, the one of uh, Alan Rickman's bad guys, Marco, the Italian, the guy mm-hmm. that Bruce Willis shoots through the crazy g- diagonal conference table. And then he's oh, right. the body he actually throws out the window onto the cop car. That's a friend I used to work with at the time back in the 80s. His name is Lorenzo, really sweetheart. But when I knew him, I didn't know he was in this. We aren't as aware then as we are now of what have you been in that I can gush over. But he was a cool guy. So every time I see it, I'm like, Lorenzo! <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody at the time actually knew either. One of the reasons being is it was a difficult shoot. They didn't really have as much time as perhaps they wanted. They were having some issues with the ending as to how to ending or how to shoot it and things like that. Probably like in most movies, they're just so focused on getting this movie done. They probably didn't really have any idea. Well, in that building, when you're in L.A., and I'm in L.A. a lot, that's always, to me, Nakatomi. <laughs> and I knew at the, the time it was empty, you know, or they were still building it. It wasn't, you know. Yes, it was the Fox Studios building. They were still building it. So when he's in those scenes yeah, on the really, floors. They really shot there. Well, and I do right. know that they had a little set to do the special effects for like when the helicopter crashes. That was all in effect. I've been to that building. I, I took a meeting there a few years back and I was just like, oh, Nakatomi. <laughs> and well, it's yeah. a very high tech building. Have you been there? No, I mean, I go by it or I see it mm-hmm. all the time. It's hard to miss. It's it very is. tall. Century City, it's, it dominates. Uh, yeah, when I went into it, I it was like a lit agency was in there, someone I was meeting with. You go in and check in at that counter and you go to a specific elevator. It's very high tech and you're just like, woo. I wanted to stop at the 30th floor, but I didn't go there. <laughs> uh, yes, and then every year on December 24th, you'll see postings on Facebook. This marks the such and such anniversary of the attack on the Nakatomi <laughs> building. A Fox Studios actually charged themselves rent to use the building, which sounds a little strange, but I think makes perfect sense accounting wise. Yeah, Uh, brilliant. Why not? You you got to rent something. You might as well, you have to pay for it. You might as well give it to yourself. That's not bad. Well, I love that you use the funniest line, come to the coast in your opening introduction. I was on the Fox lot for, I think a produced by conference and they have that scene painted on a wall there. And I took a picture of it. It's my Facebook background. Yes, (laughs) I think I saw that. I mean, I'm never going to change that. I love it. So you see, I have deep roots. 
I saw it, I'm sure, at the same time you did when it first came out. I don't have a clear memory either exactly of having seen it. I just know that I saw it when it came out. And I remember very much enjoying it. It's a movie that does grab you, that gets you involved and doesn't really let you go. You know, they wrote it well for all the characters. All the characters had something. You understood them. They all had some humor. They all had people they cared about. I haven't studied all the other films of that time, but I do think that action films on a certain level don't have that. To me, that's also why it stood the test of time. Well, it was a little different for an action film at the time. It was about one man going after all these people and saving the day. And that wasn't usual. And that did start a trend. I think you sort of alluded to it or mentioning yeah. to it that after this, everybody wanted Die Hard. So you would have Die Hard on a plane. Yes. Die yeah, that's, hard. How, that's all I had to do to pitch it, right? right? Die Hard on a bus with speed. Yeah, speed. In, Die Hard yeah. on a plane with snakes. <laughs> yeah. And then, as you say, eventually they stopped wanting Die Hard on something anymore and they moved on to something else. Taken. It was definitely taken. I remember taken for a long time they wanted, which they, well, you know, pretty much they put Liam Neeson into all of those. <laughs> well, when we get to the next movie, we'll actually see yeah. this connection to taken. It definitely. I think you mentioned, what do you think of it now? You think it really holds up? You still find it as exciting? I as enjoyed it. I just watched it the other night. To me, it had some really cleverly written things too that were set up. They seem organic to the story, but they were there to make things worse. Like when he's on the airplane and he's a little nervous and He's with a passenger that says, oh, when you get somewhere, take your shoes off and make fists of your toes and you'll be great. Because of that, he had no shoes, which was a huge complication later on. And I remember that. I mean, I wonder how many people I know I tried it. I took my shoes off after a flight and scrunched my toes. I I don't think it worked. (laughs) But for jet lag, that's the cure. I agree with you. Yeah, this time around, I did notice that. I said, oh, that's a setup for this that's going to come ahead. And it's a very clever way of setting it up. Yeah, there were a lot of things like that. You know, also when the family picture of him got pushed down and she had a different last name, all those were very important for the characters, but it also delayed the bad guys, you know, Alan Rickman knowing who he was dealing with. And of course, the uh, reporter was integral for them finding that out too. So nobody was there that didn't need to be there in the story. For a very big movie, it's a very tight script. I think that's one of the things that screenwriters probably need to think about when they're doing epics. I'll often read people doing these huge, big action or epic stories, and they're sort of all over the place. And I sort of want to say, you know, the strongest ones of these are the ones that have the simplest, most contained and tightest plots. I would agree. Well, yeah, I think, I think you could do a masterclass on this movie just for structurally how there are a lot of elements. And you could say, well, wh- why is this one there? Well, they're all there for a reason to make it uh, more intriguing. That's why there is also a thriller aspect, because you know they're going to find out that he's married to her eventually. And so it's not just action. It, it was just layers. Very good, wonderful onion peel layers of oh, intrigue and uh, hope and fear and all that good stuff that you want in a film. I think, if anything, the way I feel about it the last time I saw it and what you're saying does dovetail into that is that the mechanics of it become more and more obvious the more you watch it oh yeah especially for us like I right. mean if you're not looking for it I'm sure you don't care but it's all there and that's what makes it a better um, experience mm-hmm. watching it I was joking with my husband you know that if this hadn't happened I don't think John McClane would have saved his marriage I mean obviously we know from the other sequels that they don't last as a couple but I don't think he would have saved his marriage right here because they were already fighting it was only because he made this great effort to show his love and save her that they actually patched things up for a while. Well, that was one thing I was going to get into later on, but we can talk about that sort of. I was going to ask what you felt about the male-female dynamics in the movie. 
for 1988, I thought it was really quite good because she was a tough woman. You know, she'd made the decision that wouldn't have been popular, I don't think, in the 80s that for everyone to pick career over stable relationship. She obviously moved her family away from her husband, a job he couldn't leave across the country. Well, so, and, actually, I might disagree there. I oh, think really? that is, yeah, she made the smart choice. She had to take this promotion. He could have moved. Well, sure, he could have. But LA, uh, the, it, the Los Angeles Police Department, I'm sure, would have eventually Hire well, him. they don't explain except the fact that, I mean, if you're fully entrenched somewhere, I mean, basically he had a career that in his mind he couldn't leave. He expected her to be a wife and stay home. So to me, they were addressing that, well, that it happened their relationship and she had said, no, I'm going. Yeah, exactly. I think the point I'm trying to make is oh. what's unusual about this movie is I'm on her side. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I was I, I'm going on her side. You're, you idiot, Bruce Willis. Yeah, you should Sean go. McClain. You should have moved. What is wrong? Well, with you. And you I know. think that was a unique point of view in the 80s. Right. Sure. So yeah, so to me, it was forward thinking. So I like how the women are portrayed. What well, she's really the only one that's fully fleshed out female character. That is true that, from that perspective. I do like the scene where she goes into Alec Rickman and he says, who put you in charge? And she said, you did when you shot my boss. Yeah, because he says, what idiot put you in charge? Yeah. Like you did. It was, yeah, she's tough. I mean, you can yes. see. Yeah, yeah, that was a great moment. She had some good lines. I could see why an actress would want to play it, even though it was a pretty small role. You know, Bonnie and Delia had a, you know, she was a name at the time. But I do think the ending is a bit unresolved. They get over their argument, but as you said, their marriage doesn't last. This didn't really solve anything. And I sometimes have this problem with movies like this that are based on two characters who, men and women, who have to overcome their differences in order to reconcile. They reconcile. And then in the very next movie, they're not reconciled anymore. You, you saw this <laughs> in Romancing the Stone. Right. In, in the next one, they're not together anymore. Well, I and, think that's a flaw in writing because like when a couple are together, you, they can't stay together. That, that loses all the tension. And I disagree. I mean, look at uh, movies like The Thin Man. Perfect choice because yeah. I was thinking that exactly. The producers want the exact same movie when it probably would have been better to actually have the characters stay together and be happy and go on an adventure together like exactly. in The Thin Man. Yeah, but their thing is that's not the audience. They're not looking at the audience as a, a couples, which is too bad. I think today it's, I'd like to think it's changed, but I don't know. I think it's the same. I mean, you look at all the John Wick movies. He obviously doesn't, you know, they killed his wife. So... <laughs> Well, I mean, that's one to way to do it today. Person. You don't have to reconcile with someone who's dead. No, you can just have some flashbacks of her or something. I agree. I don't know how else you could have ended it. I mean, you still have to follow what's expected at the time. It was a very weird ending in the sense that they used, the last thing they solved was the police officer's problem of not being able to draw his weapon. Usually you solve a subplot before the final. Right. That's a scene that strikes me and might strike the audience differently today. Yeah. In light of current events, the idea that we're supposed to be celebratory of a police officer getting back to taking his gun and killing someone. I wonder how the audience today might feel about that. I was a little taken aback and unsure about how I felt about it. That ending was very unbelievable, right? Mm. He had clearly would have killed the guy before. <laughs> so it was kind of like a monster movie ending where the monster right. never dies. It's sort of like they like, oh, we just need something. I, so I totally see what you're saying. I don't know if violence works, but it was at least a reverse of the issues we have today. Well, so. I do agree that it worked, certainly. And it was of its time, which was a different time. Right. But it did strike me a, a little today that, hmm, I wonder. I I'm not saying yay or nay. I'm just going. Hmm, exactly. I, I agree. I, it would not be written that way today, I don't think. 
What are some of your favorite scenes from the movie? I do love like the humor uh, between Hans and, well, Roy is what he's calling himself. I love that when they're on the walkie and they're talking and then that leads up to them meeting face to face and Alan Rickman pretending he's a hostage. To me, all of that was just marvelous. Alan Rickman's so great. He was the perfect bad guy. I certainly agree that any scene that Alan Rickman in steals the movie. I think he is in many ways the saving grace of the movie. As much as I enjoyed the other people in the movie, except for perhaps Reginald Vell Johnson, who played Sergeant Al Powell, the police officer mm-hmm. who is in constant contact with Bruce Willis. None of them really give particularly great performance. Says Bruce Willis is a good actor, but he's certainly not up to Alan Rickman. You know, neither is Bonnie Bedelia or any of the other characters. So I wonder how well the movie would have done without Alan Rickman just coming in and sort of taking over. If you ask me, I, it wouldn't have done well. If you don't have a strong villain in anything, an antagonist, I think it lessens the whole impact that your protagonist has. That character was written well, and they had a really good actor in the part. It made a big difference. It was his first film. Really? Was it? Before this, he was only known for his stage work. I believe McTiernan saw him in a production of La Liaison's Dangerous. Oh, wow. As Valmont, and decided to cast him on that. Alan Rickman wasn't sure he wanted the part, because he didn't know if he wanted his first part in a film to be a villain. Mm. Then he does steal the movie, and he does have some problems, because they constantly now want to cast him as a villain in movies after this. Though he did fight and have a very, very varied uh, career. Yeah, he did. Yeah, I don't feel bad for him. (laughs) It was okay. (laughs) If he had a few years of trouble, I I think in the long run, it worked out for him really well. And he did Uh, some marvelous, marvelous movies after this. And I will never forget him in A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, where he plays a robot who is clinically depressed and (laughs) constantly in a state of ennui and despair. That's all right. Don't worry. Nobody pay any attention to me. Nobody ever listens to me. I don't know why I keep on going. He sort of steals every single he does so he was great yeah and you're right the three main characters were him al and roy and they all to me held their own they were necessary and you needed those in the story because otherwise you wouldn't have known anything about bruce willis's character or it's a pet peeve of mine when characters talk to themselves too much i mean a little bit like yes to me they were clever in how they fixed that because that was an inherent flaw in the story which you need to know those things so you can fix them apparently what happened was that bruce willis and the director and I think the writers were having trouble with his character because it really wasn't coming alive and then one of them figured out play him as if he hates himself Hmm. and Bruce Willis said once they did that that just changed everything and he had a character to play and that's one of the things that seems to make the character work so well yeah he knows he's blown it he knows he's in the wrong but he just can't admit it and he's the one that's at fault well that makes a lot of sense it's interesting so you know they did know what they were doing I mean it's not just luck they did see the right people like at the right time and they worked through the issues they had I'm constantly impressed by this movie I I always will be I don't think it'll ever diminish (laughs) stature I certainly think it's a very well structured and constructed movie it's sort of the epitome of what the studio can do when the studio does things right even though there was a lot of chaos in making of the movie and they didn't always know what they were doing and they didn't always know like how exactly it was going to end or how they were going to do the Mm -hmm. ending i think they filmed the explosions a couple of months afterwards they had only like an 
hour or two hours to film that explosion. So they had to get it right. I think they shot it twice and they did get it right. Amazing. I also like uh, Argyle, the limo driver. He, he was, was a, a nice little bit part. Yeah, because he was just fun. I think everybody had a moment right. when it came to it, some kind of level of humor. Speaking of Alan Rickman, which we were, it might be interesting to note that there are two pieces of his acting that were not planned for. The first one was when Hart Ochner comes in and says, Hans Booby. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, when he, Ellis, he really embodied that character. That was unique, right? Yeah, he made up that line. That was an improvised line. So Alan Rickman is sort of taken aback and you can see that in his face. That wasn't really acting. The other was when he was dropped from the building and he was dropped earlier than they said they were going to do it. He was completely taken by surprise and the look of fear on his face is a real look of fear did you know how they shot that uh he fell i think 18 feet into a bag or something interesting because i mean there is a tool they have that, that you can do it at your actually level and you're falling towards a screen that's projected i was pretty sure they did the shot that way but i never read about it and he was very furious at what they did it would be too but that was a <laughs> very good reaction <laughs> yes another scene when supposedly bruce willis falls down an elevator shaft right that was, that was his double but that wasn't supposed to happen they, mm. he was not supposed to fall all the way down the elevator shaft apparently he wasn't injured nothing was hurt but they decided to use that shot so they edited it in and decided to have Bruce Willis fall down the elevator shaft which wasn't really part of the original game well, plan happy accident that luckily no one got hurt Alan Rickman got hurt at one point and so a number of the scenes especially when he's behind the desk and he's standing he's only standing on one leg oh no I think he hurt his ankle the scene where Bruce Willis comes down the side of the building and bursts through the window was the very first scene shot and he asked afterwards why they shot it now instead of at the end and they said well if we shot at the end and something happened to you and we couldn't use the shot we wouldn't be able to afford to reshoot the whole movie <laughs> thanks a lot guys yeah hey producers have to think of those things well that's right what do you think the lasting impact of Die Hard has been? I think it influenced the, the action films that came after it big time, for sure. Have you seen the other films in the franchise? Yes, I've seen them all. <laughs> and what do you think of those? I liked only one of them, the fourth one. The two after this weren't good. You know, the thing is, you move on and it's not the same team putting them together. It's the studio right. owns it and you can really tell. I liked the one where they brought the daughter into it. Justin Long was in that one. I think it was... See, Live Free and Die Hard... I mean, it was literally yes. Die Hard. I really was impressed with that one. It was a clever story. I mean, it had a lot of fun moments. The last one they did was with his son, and that when they go to Russia, it was that one I didn't like. You don't expect a lot from sequels. I had to see them all, but I only liked that one with Justin Long in it. I haven't seen the last one. I actually rather enjoyed the second and third one. Really? Uh, more than other people did. I didn't think they came up to Die Hard, but I thought they were entertaining enough. Yeah, I mean, I sat yeah. through them. Who's the villain that played Hans Gruber's brother in the third one? Jeremy Irons. Oh. Of course, I enjoyed that a lot because I think Jeremy Irons. Oh, he's good. Samuel L. Jackson was in one of them. One. They had some good people. In yes, but the one you're talking hard. about with Justin Long, that I one. enjoyed very much because of the humor. It's probably the funniest. It is. Justin right. Long was obviously funny. I mean, Kevin Smith is in it. That's all funny. You know, his daughter was in it. You sort of found out what happened more about their family and so do you fall on the side of the people that think it's a Christmas movie? <laughs> I like to call it a Christmas movie because it happened at Christmas. There's even a Santa. Dead Santa. 
I, I, I mean, agree. obviously it's not a traditional Christmas movie, but yeah, it qualifies. Well, the basic argument against it is that it's not about Christmas, but I consider The Thin Man a Christmas movie. So if sure. I consider The Thin Man a Christmas movie, I have to consider Die Hard a Christmas movie. And I was on a uh, podcast where we were deciding what is the greatest Christmas movie of all. My choice was It's a Wonderful Life, but there was an argument over whether Die Hard and The Thin Man were Christmas movies. People did consider Die Hard to be a Christmas movie. I think it may have come in second. The Muppets Christmas Carol, I think, was chosen <laughs> as the first one. I would definitely put it in my top five. Here's some notes about the movie. It cost $28 million to make. It made $141 million worldwide. There were four sequels, as we discussed. The cast includes Hart Bachner, who is the son of Lloyd Bachner, who's one of these great character actors that go way back. He's been in other stuff, I remember. Oh, I know, yeah, I know him too, yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, James Shigata is perhaps the first Asian actor who was allowed to play romantic leads in movies. He was in Sam Fuller's The Crimson and kimono and flower drum song. Paul Xavier Gleason, who was the detective in charge, was also in The Breakfast Club. It got four Academy Award nominations, wow. sound effects, editing, editing, sound, and visual effects. The office interiors where the party took place were based on Frank Lloyd Wright's building Falling Water. Oh, wow. So that's not in that building, which I figured it wasn't. That was the one I, I want to go see that if it's there, but it's not there. No, it's not. And I believe originally in the book, Hans Gruber was actually, they were terrorists. But McTiernan didn't want to deal with terrorists or make a movie about terrorists. So in closing, do you have anything else you might want to add about Die Hard? Just that I'm, it was it was fun to watch again. So thank you. <laughs> it's definitely one of those ones, if, if I catch it on TV, I, I'll sit there and watch it. So with that, let's go on to my choice for the movie, which is the French parkour martial arts drama District B-13. First, some information on the film. It was released in 2004. It was directed by Peter Morel. The writer was Luc Besson, who I think also produced. And it stars David Bell, Cyril Raffaelli, Tony D'Americo, Danny Verissimo, Larbi Nasseri, Francois Chatet, Nicholas Vorin, and I'll probably get a lot of these wrong, Patrick Olivier. Samir Gassimi or Gwimi, and Jeff Rudum. The basic premise revolves around a future Paris where a certain district, District 13, has become so crime-ridden that France has walled up the area and even abandoned it, withdrawing all the police and any government services. But when the most powerful crime lord in the district steals a clean bomb and accidentally sets off the timer, a martial arts expert police officer joins up with a parkour expert convict who once lived in the district to go in and defuse the bomb. Double and triple crosses ensue. <laughs> when did you first see the film? Just last week. I've never seen this. <laughs> Thank you for introducing me to it. So what did you think of it? I mean, I enjoyed it. It was, to me, very much like Escape from New York meets John Wick with parkour. It definitely has been compared to Escape to New York and a South Korean film called Ong Bak. And I think that's one of the major criticisms of it. In many ways, it's not particularly an original film, but it's Luc Besson, so... It's, well, well, it's his it's, version, and I mean, I don't fault him for that. I enjoyed that parkour, and it surprised me that there was this other element of, these are our people, we have to protect them, and we're honorable. And so that had an element that I wouldn't have expected in it. What are some of your favorite scenes? Well, I like all the parkour stuff was pretty cool. Yes. And David Bell, the actor... I was just trying to look through his IMDb. I swear he had a bit part in something I just recently 
saw, he got cute. He was like one of the bad guys trying to look and they don't show it. They don't show he has it, a whatever. very familiar face. I know I saw him in a movie called The Family. Oh, yeah. He's definitely in The Family. Uh, oh, that is the one. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I just saw The Family. Great movie. Yeah. So, uh, I, yeah, I was watching that going, hey, that's that guy from <laughs> District B13. very, very interesting face. In fact, most of the actors in it have very familiar faces, but I couldn't really place them. It, it reminded me, because all the parkour I love. That's really fun. And, it rhymed, you know, I don't know if you saw Paul Blart Mall Cop. The parkour in that was really cool, too. There was, Of course, this was much more serious, but... But I loved how he fought. He had a little bit of that. That's what to me had sort of a John Wick thing going. You, I love those moments when you have a character and you know how capable they are, but nobody else does. And it's one guy against 30 and he just gives you a little smirk and then beats the crap out of everyone. That's fun. I mean, I don't know. It's wish fulfillment, I think. Well, it is. I think a lot of the movie is wish fulfillment. But yeah. David Bell was one of the founders of parkour and yeah. one of the people who made it very popular and very successful. And I agree. The parkour element of the movie are certainly a standout. I had heard of it before and there had been precursors of it. There's a movie called Jim Cotta, a not particularly good film that came out in like the 80s and which has some elements of parkour in it, but a precursor, not what we would know as parkour today. And I also enjoyed very much the martial arts. Yeah, it wasn't just that. Well, yeah. I mean, to me, it had a really strong opening where the hero gets all the way where you think he succeeded uh, mm-hmm. and he hasn't, obviously, then everything goes really bad, sets up the rest of the film. So that was powerful. I mean, it definitely, from a storytelling standpoint, you were on his side by the, that first act turning point because you're like, oh, it's so unfair. And oh my gosh, how is he going to save his sister? And Yes, the serial Raffaele, who played the captain, Tomas, so, was also in Live Free or Die Hard. Oh, let's see. Let me look. I have to look at this picture. That's cool. You know, I have a couple of other scenes also that I enjoy very much. I do like the scene where they all turn on Taha. Yeah, that was cool. Because I was thinking, boy, this is long overdue. I'm <laughs> yeah. surprised they haven't shot him long before now. Exactly. Just like, so why? <laughs> yeah. I-, I was a little surprised that he didn't know that too, that he didn't have some reason why they were so loyal to him because like maybe he could fight as well. Yes, I think that is probably a bit unbelievable that there hadn't been a coup long before this. I don't think Caligula lasted <laughs> as long as Taha last. Yeah. I mean, you could say he's the brains of the group, but he was getting to the point where he wasn't acting in a particularly brainy way. Yeah. His time was due. That, to me, that's where it is more in a typical action film that, like something like Taken, especially, mm-hmm. where it's all about the setup. And once the setup happens, it just plays out. So there was a lot of that happening with this until the end which to me I like the twist at the end was a surprise I didn't expect one you know yes I thought it was a very very clever mm-hmm. twist. clever twist there were a lot of twists a lot of twists at the end and one of the best scenes there is when Leto David Bell tells the police officer uh, Tommaso didn't you see the armored car it was they say mm-hmm. it was blown up but it wasn't blown up right the story didn't match with their evidence so yeah he was more alert following up than the other guy well that's uh, because the other off. guy was pretty straight laced and said oh just like today I guess you could also see a very contemporary means. The police and the authorities never do anything wrong. Right, right. They can always be trusted. They're not corrupt. Or Lido had already been had been proven to his face how corrupt they were, so he right. was trusting anybody. It definitely had some deeper elements to it that are very impressive as far as storytelling go. And I like that sort of it became a bit of a buddy-buddy story where they have to work together. They, you know, sort of like that recent Fast and the Furious, the last one they did, that, you know, where you had two characters that were both really strong basically the same 
kind of character. And you don't see that often. Usually one's the fighting guy and the other guy's the smart guy. So here you had two fighting guys that had to work together. Yes, it does become a Betty film. One of my other favorite scenes is when they come upon Yeti, who's the big... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And all I thought was Blazing Saddles. Oh, yeah. When they're going after Mongo and Gene Wilder says, oh, don't shoot him. That's only going to make him mad. So I thought, uh, don't hit him with this brick. That's only going to make him mad. I first saw it when it came out. And one of the reasons why I saw it, besides liking foreign films, besides liking French films, is I saw it for free. Yeah. I was working at the Arclight. And of course, you got to see movies for free there. And they brought in this film, District B-13, which I'd never heard of before. I'm not sure anybody had ever really heard of it before. And they would do this occasionally. They would get a film in that I had had no knowledge of where it came from. And I have to admit, they were often very good at taking these movies that no one had heard of so they brought in district b13 and i didn't expect anything of it i thought it was just going to be a stupid french action film and i went and saw it and said oh this is very exciting this is is not what i was expecting do you think sometimes it is more enjoyable because you don't know anything about it that can help certainly well and Uh, then when it turns out to be good obviously yes it's very hard for me to find a movie that i know nothing about that's true yeah, it's very difficult because movies get written about. Even movies you don't know of that appear in theaters or know that they're there unless you read something about them so you get some idea of what it is. In many ways, this was sort of a big surprise. And I don't know how many French films you see or, or what you're about. I actually love French films. I watch a lot of them and I like the comedies and uh, a lot of murder mystery whodunit kind of ones. They have some unique ones. This was harder to read. I did notice how since it's an action film and things move faster, the subtitles aren't up as long sometimes. You're like what oh, okay i think i noticed that too but since i've already seen it before it didn't really yeah. get in the way too much but i think yes the, well you get the, the gist price. you don't necessarily yeah. need to read everything but, but yeah not, they not, for, not like, for this film let's face it but this is a very different french film than we usually get over here we don't usually get these films and we don't think that france makes films like this I think we have sort of a one-dimensional idea of movies that France makes, and they're all more in the art sort of side of cinema. But they have a whole industry where they make films like this. Luc Besson is one of the major writer, director, producers of film, and his films are ridiculously over the top, but often quite entertaining. Though I do remember early in his career when I think The Big Blue came out, which was, I think, his first big success, Pauline Kael said it was the end of French cinema as we know it. (laughs) To a degree, she had point. But of course, the government has funds and helps support independent cinema and small and art cinema in France. They wouldn't necessarily give money to something like District B-13, which would probably be financed by a big consortium of money people. But we usually just don't get these kind of movies over here. There's one set of movies I've always wanted to see. They're nowhere to be found here, and that's the Asterix and Obelisk series of movies, which are based on comic books. They're satires of Julius Caesar and, and Mark Anthony and people like that. They're not supposed to be very good, but they're huge and big and over the top, and they star George Dave do and Roberto Benigni and Catherine Deneuve. It's hard to find distributors for movies like that in the U.S. But when I went to France once back in the 90s, I went to see an American film because I wanted to see how the French audience would react to an American comedy. I went and saw Pleasantville. And they were having pre 
previews to the new Asterix and Obelisk movie. And I was looking at it and I said, oh my God, this looks terrible. But oh my God, I so want to see it. We just don't get those kind of movies over here. So I think we sort of have this idea of what French movies are like. I think anything shouldn't be stuck in one place. I was just looking through. I, I know Luc Besson, you know, he came up through screenwriting. He wrote The Family, plus he directed it. Right. So, uh, and he's done a lot of stuff with the Taken TV series. So there's a lot of cross-bleeding here in La Femme Nikita TV series. Yes. he's a major yeah. film person. Uh, he's for some a- reason, I just thought he was a writer-director for his own stuff. But yeah, he's got a nice track record of things that make sense. <laughs> he's been there uh, in our lives and we didn't even know it. Yes, I mean, there are a few that I haven't seen. I haven't seen Subway. That's that's the one that I would like to see. And I haven't seen La Femme Nikita, but I have seen the one about the little girl, Dan Hitman, and he helps the little girl. Oh, right. The Professional. That was really good. That and La Femme Nikita are the ones that are probably the favorites of people in the U.S. of Hassan. But he's a major force over there. You get movies like The Artist, and to show you what the French industry is like, the director of The Artist had trouble raising money for it in France because the French considered it too commercial, so the government didn't want to give any money to it. So when he came to the U.S. to try to raise money for it, they considered too artsy. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> Go to Italy. They'll help you. Catch 22, right? Right. Yeah. But he didn't finally get the money to make the movie. And then it won Best Picture, so there take you that, many people. Yeah, take that. Maybe that'll change the point of view next time. We've spoken of Taken a few times. It's come up in the conversation. So it should be noted that the director of District B-13, Peter Morrill, is also the director of Taken. Wow. And it sounds like you're a fan. Taken. Oh, yeah. To me, Taken is such a tight film in the sense of, I timed it once, I don't remember now, but it might be like 15 seconds or... I mean, they set up everything, all the stakes, who he was so fast, and then you just go. Right. And there's a beauty about that. One of the neatest things I think about action films is when you have a character that is totally capable and you just want to see him do his thing. I mean, that's what makes some action films so unique. It's like, yeah, sure, I like my drama and I want to see the ups and downs. But this, I mean, there really was no roadblock. He knew what he was going to do. He did it. Yeah, it's a very exciting movie. It changed Liam Neeson's career. It redefined it completely. It's basically a modern-day version of the great classic John Wayne film, The Searchers. It certainly has a pedigree in that. So Peter Morrell did direct both films. The film was remade in the U.S. It is Brick Mansions. It was Paul Walker's last fully completed performance. He did have one more movie, the Fast and the Furious film, but he didn't fully complete that film. They had to use some stand-ins and things like that for that movie. Rick Mansions also starred David Bell. Do you have any final thoughts on District B-13? Well, I would say, too, that I paid homage to Snake Plissken. We said Escape from New York. That character is just sort of like one in a kind, Kurt Russell. And I feel like you saw a modern-day version in both of the characters, the main guys in this. Yes, and then, as I said, the movie's often been compared, compared to yeah. Escape from New York. Well, it was fun. It was fun to watch, and I don't think I would have stumbled across it. So thanks again, Howard. So in closing, I asked you to come up with a movie or two that you might want to recommend that's in the same vein as the movie you chose. I feel like we just set went through them all. I mean, <laughs> definitely you need to see Escape from New York, John Wick, Taken. I mean, John Wick to me owes a lot more to Taken because it's also a very fast setup and then the guy just does what he said he's going to do. I think all those movies came out of it. As far as Die Hard, I would definitely see the fourth one. Two, Live two. Free and Die Hard. 
For my suggestion, I will share a film that I actually just saw recently called Steel Rain that came out in 2017. It's a South Korean film. I'm a big fan of South Korean films. Mm-hmm. I think South Korea and Romania are making the most interesting films in the world right now. It was directed by Woo Suk Young and written by Ha Young Jung. It's a big political thriller. The plot's a bit complicated, but basically there's a coup in North Korea, by a military coup. A soldier is able to get the supreme leader who has been wounded and is dying to South Korea without anybody knowing. And there he joined forces with a government agent to try and stop the generals in North Korea from starting a nuclear war. Let's hope he succeeds. You can find it on Netflix. This is a really fast-paced, action-packed, interesting I think I know what I'm doing this afternoon. In closing out, what is next on the horizon for you? What should we be looking for? In my free time here, I've been doing some podcasting. I've created an audio drama. There's different kinds of audio dramas. Some can be like a, a radio theater kind of thing where you have multiple actors. Obviously, because of quarantine and all that, I haven't been able to do that. So I've had to just do it myself. So I'm more like reading a book with sound effects and music. So that's well, that sort very of a, exciting. It's called Lyric, A Mother of a Fairy Tale. And it's really a YA kind of fantasy story. It's on Spotify, iTunes. Yeah. There's two episodes up. I'm working on the third. So it's uh, it's fun. It's something to do creative where you have all the control yourself. You know, that doesn't happen too often for writers. Um, and my writing partner and I did something kind of similar where there's a theater in L.A. called the Courage Theater. They're doing a nomad project. So we just wrote something for them. So they're actually using their actors to do a radio play kind of for audio. It's all based on a single location in L.A. So you could either Google map it and see the location location or you could go drive there in your car and listen to it. That's coming out. We just finished delivering our end and they have to record it and produce it now. That sounds very exciting. For me, I'll go over my usual litany. I am a script consultant, and I do have a script consultation page on Facebook called Howard Kastner Script Consultation. I have a blog called Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader that covers topics of screenwriting and movies. I have two books of short stories that I published on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are horror, sci-fi, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the most recent edition of my my screenwriting book called More Ranting and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. I'm an amateur photographer. You can find those on Instagram. Over the weekend, I was on the Lambcast podcast. Lambcast is the largest association of movie bloggers. And the topic was, what have you been watching lately? Where I did talk about Still Rain. I am going to be on the Cathode Ray mission with Adam Franz, who has been a guest on my show. And we're going to be talking about the career of Fritz Lang. Last week, Pop Art, the topic was the movie's adaptation and Sunset Boulevard, both about screenwriters. My guest was Josh Kim, who was the writer-director of the movie How to Win a Checkers Every Time, which was the Thai entry in the foreign film category at the Oscars. And next week, we and my guest are going to be talking about American Psycho and Repulsion, two movies about, well, let's say people who sort of go off the deep end. (laughs) <laughs> just a little just a little well you know i have to say that um i interviewed you several years ago right for screenwriters beat it's still on youtube and you i think are my highest viewed interview well, that is so, thank you. very nice to yeah. hear so thank yeah. you for so it still holds up it was great <laughs> well you gave some great advice for people that want to know how to make an entry into a screenwriting contest better great Thank you for this. I enjoyed it. Once again, yes. Thank you for being on the show. You are welcome. Anytime. 